0: This week on Political Research Digest, how the Tea Party led the way to Donald Trump. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. The Tea Party that arose in 2009 seemed initially focused on bailouts, health care, and taxes. But new research suggests that the concerns about cultural change and distrust of distant elites that animated Trump supporters were also central to the Tea Party. Not just in the electorate, but among activists and even for aligned members of Congress. I talked to Brian Gervais of the University of Texas at San Antonio about his new book with Erwin Morris, Reactionary Republicanism, from Oxford University Press. They find that Tea Partiers in Congress veered rightward on racial concerns and pioneered the social media incivility now associated with President Trump. And the wider Tea Party activist and organizational network also reoriented the Republican Party, paving the way for Trump, according to Rachel Bloom of Miami University of Ohio. Her new book manuscript, Party Takeover, finds that Tea Party worked as a party within the Republican Party to reorient its ideology to focus on cultural threats. Tea Partiers held signs about being taxed enough already and protested Obamacare. But Brian Gervais has a closer look at the movement in Congress, reveals that social and racial concerns and a fighting style set Tea Party members apart.
1: What made the Tea Partiers in Congress different from your average Republican, the so-called establishment Republicans, uh, was not their position on fiscal or economic matters. Instead, it was they had different positions on civil rights and social policies. And they're also more likely to use incivility in their social media rhetoric and present a gloom and doom message about the state of the United States, this idea that Americans have been failed by a federal government that was uncaring, that certain groups were given... Preferential treatment in the United States and that the country overall was in a decline. Uh, the uncivil and sad rhetoric that they utilize, especially in social media, we argue, helped to make voters more inclined to support and vote for Donald Trump or candidate like him in 2016.
0: The Tea Party was not a fringe element. Gervais and Morris find that a large fraction of House Republicans were either supported by them or sought to link themselves to the movement.
1: We find that in the 112th Congress, about uh, 40% of the GOP conference had no connection to the Tea Party in either dimension, meaning 60% did. On the 113th, that changes a little bit because the Tea Party caucus, that the formal caucus, ceases to exist or really be you know, organized or meet at all, so it fades from existence. But we still find that a third of the GOP conference had Tea Party ties. right? So still a very significant part of the Republican conference was connected to the Tea Party in some way.
0: And they weren't ineffective backbenchers either.
1: This perception of Tea Party legislators being these uh, neophyte backbenchers, right, who could obstruct uh, but had limited legislative success themselves. We don't find a lot of evidence of this either, right? You know, we find that members associated with the Tea Party uh, weren't any less active when it came to drafting legislation, and they were just as effective when it came to getting it passed, right? They weren't just obstructionists, right, that didn't know what they were doing. We find some evidence to the contrary, a little bit of evidence to the contrary.
0: And Gervais says the Tea Party drew from the same electoral constituency as Trump and served as a halfway house between the Bush and Trump eras.
1: Trump and the Tea Party are sort of endogenous to this. Same sort of cultural change uh, happening among the Tea Party electorate. But the Tea Party played a crucial role in sort of blazing the path and making a candidate like Trump possible. If they hadn't come first, right, ma- making the jump from sort of the Bush era Republican Party to Trump, that wasn't possible, right? took the Tea Party to sort of make that path from, you know, the electorate moving from uh, sort of the, the neoconservative era of, of the Republican Party to the Trump era.
0: In the book Change They Can't Believe In, Chris Barker and Matt Barreto had previously shown that the Tea Party's mass supporters stood out for their racial concerns, not their economic views. Gervais and Morris finds that it was not just voters, but legislators, who stood out mainly on cultural concerns
1: we find that no real difference between members connected to the tea party and other republicans when it came to fiscal issues right and fiscal roll calls however when it came to things like uh, votes related to civil rights by civil rights, you know, we'd be talking about things like limiting uh, the Department of Justice's ability to deal with or challenge controversial state immigration laws, limiting the DOJ's ability to help out African farmers who are claiming discrimination, votes having to do with limiting or blocking DACA and policies, you know, having to do with things like fair housing and wages, right? Uh, policies that disproportionately affect minority communities, right? Here's, that's one area where we see some differences. Tea Party members were much more conservative uh, or voted more conservative on those issues. And we say this is in line.
0: Only the organizational elites of the Tea Party were economically focused.
1: In terms of the Tea Party organizations, I think they were absolutely, you know, interested in, in lots of fiscal conservatism, and, and this is, you know, really what their, you know, ultimate goals were, were to see, you know, fiscally conservative policy passed. Uh, but they see that, you know, the Tea Party or the Tea Party movement or the feelings of resentment in the electorate as an opportunity. And I'd argue it was the same case with House leadership as well. You know, going into 2010, the young guns, right, uh, Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor, Kevin McCarthy, and John Boehner, as well, right, see an opportunity here, see energy um, that can be utilized to retake the House and, pa- and perhaps pass uh, fiscal uh, conservative legislation, right? It's sort of a means to an end. It, sort of this latent resentment here is just, you know, there to be mined and utilized, even if they don't necessarily agree with the rhetoric or, or agree with the goals of the broader, you know, of the Tea Party in the electorate.
0: Gervais and Morris even find that Trump's tweeting style had precedent in Tea Party members of Congress when they checked these tweets for incivility.
1: Not a huge percentage of them were uncivil. It was, you know, about one and a half percent on average in both the 112th and 113th Congress. A little bit more incivility in the 113th Congress than the 112th. However, even though incivility was relatively rare, there was a whole lot of variability amongst the members right some party Repu- or rather some Republicans were much more uncivil than other Republicans, and what we found that a very good predictor of uh, being uncivil on Twitter was Tea Party attachment.
0: members like Steve King of Iowa presaged Trump in both concerns and tweet style
1: Steve King, member of Congress from Iowa just the uh, types of things he was saying um, I think uh, it ties into some of the stuff we'd see from Trump later yeah, same sort of rhetoric you know he, he was tweeting about illegals and this was the term he was using illegals uh, on a bus heading from a- are uh, heading to Iowa. He's telling his constituents, warning them to be on the lookout for illegal, unaccompanied children coming, sort of invading their homes and things like this, right? And when we get to Trump in 2015, rather coming down the elevator of Trump Tower, you know, making the announcement about you know illegals coming over the border, you know, with their drugs and crime and things like this. You know, we saw this was really an echo of stuff we we're seeing from from some of the folks like Steve King as well. And he wasn't alone in that regard, really just talking about illegal immigrants and the stuff they were, they were bringing.
0: They also used Trumpian rhetoric about the fall of America and the need for resurgence.
1: It's no surprise this, you know, "Make America Great Again" message we argue resonates with so many Republican voters because it's very, very, you know, it's sort of the answer to um, the issues being raised by you know a number of Tea Party Republicans in you know the four four, four years prior uh, to 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 Trump running right. This description of the United States that is just changing demographically and you know and in terms of material resources losing on that front as well and that it really needs to be just completely overhauled and fixed
0: rachel bloom says the tea party should be thought of as an integrated effort to take over and redirect the republican party
2: we often talk about the tea party as this kind of one-off movement it's easy to paint it as crazy or angry um but in reality it had a particular political structure. It was a faction inside of a major party. And it's not the first faction like this. It's just the, the first one really in our, in our lifetime. And what we see with the Tea Party is a group of people who didn't feel represented particularly by the big umbrella of the Republican Party, who maybe in another country would have become a third party, a minor party. But here, they found a different way to to channel their goals through the machinery of the Republican Party.
0: It was a lot more than a series of protests.
2: The Tea Party isn't just, or never was just, a protest movement. Instead, it's a, a faction that exists despite its name changing. So, to jump to Congress for a second, the House Freedom Caucus is probably the most clear instantiation of the Tea Party's goals in Congress, even though they don't call themselves the Tea Party Caucus. My corrective, I guess, to the conventional narrative on this is that the Tea Party wasn't just like a group of angry people wearing three-cornered hats and waving flags. It was, was and is this sustained alternative energy within the Republican Party.
0: And the movement opened the Republican Party to Trump's nomination.
2: Trump is the kind of candidate you would expect from a movement or a faction that was most concerned with preserving a certain way of life, with kind of protecting themselves from anyone they saw as threatening, whether that was an elite, you know, someone in the swamp, or um, an ethno-cultural outsider.
0: But rather than through isolated candidates, the Tea Party succeeded by mirroring the Republican Party's organization, but pursuing new priorities.
2: We should, and I think do see it having its own miniature party structure, right? So there is a Tea Party in government, there is a Tea Party in organization, and there is a Tea Party in the electorate. And it's similar to the actual party. The Tea Party in the electorate is exactly the people that Chris Parker and Mark uh, Matt Barretto interview or survey. The Tea Party as organization is a little bit more difficult, as you pointed out, to define because there were these umbrella groups, but um, they weren't necessarily consonant with what the activists were pushing. And I, I think that the corrective there is that for this faction, the activist groups were more of the organizational apparatus. Uh, and I can go on about that forever, really. Uh, but then the Tea Party in government has mainly a congressional component, which I pull apart in the book by looking at the, the voting behavior, the co-sponsorship behavior, and even the rhetoric in press releases. And I find that a congressional component certainly existed, basically, as we move through the Tea Party era into 2015, when the House Freedom Caucus emerges, by this point, we have a distinct group of Republicans who have this affiliation, who are co-sponsoring together, voting together across a range of types of legislation, and even emphasizing different things in their press releases.
0: And the movement took the long-running reactionary base identified by Parker and Barreto and brought it into the party mainstream.
2: We can't just any longer say, well, it's, it's part of the electorate or it's part of the GOP. Well, now, even if it only is part of the GOP, it's the part that's in control, at least of the presidency, at least of a lot of that party's rhetoric of who insiders are now. So what I'm working on currently is arguing that this is more of an ideological renegotiation. So what you get out of the Tea Party is a shift in the Republican Party's priorities. And if we can kind of think about this in a stylized way, since the realignment that culminates in the 1980s, the Republican Party has been conceived as this fusion, right, between social conservatives, fiscal conservatives and Warhawks. And left out of that narrative was a group of people that Chris Parker points to, and a lot of other people point to, as having existed for a very long time as well, which are the reactionary conservatives, the people who were the McCarthyites, the America Firsters, the John Birch Society, the Southern Democrats turned Reagan Republicans. So they've always been there. They've been unacknowledged.
0: Because Bloom grew up on the political right, she was focused on the role of activists in setting party priorities.
2: I grew up in conservative movement politics. So my parents were very much part of the Christian right, the homeschooling movement, and they kind of had me involved in all of this stuff that I didn't even understand. And I eventually kind of obviously departed from that, especially as I went through college and grad school. But it it meant that I had a sense of how conservatives do things in movement politics. And I knew from, from how I grew up and the people I was around that A lot of it really is these activists who are are doing what and Stimson explained in 1989, right? They're forming this bridge between the elites and their messaging and maybe less attentive voters. And this is exactly what I think made the Tea Party so powerful because you had this incredibly organized network of activist groups who managed to be iterating versions of the same message but with enough local variation that they were, you know, kind of sympathetic to people in their region.
0: And she found they voiced disillusionment with elites, but also revealed the cultural basis of their concerns.
2: The interesting thing about talking to Tea Partiers is that they mostly were aware that they could be pinpointed as as racist or having some sort of, you know, threat-centric disposition, and they were very careful at least they thought to to work around that and it's exactly as you put it the, the language that they went back to was was language of of distrust of elites of outsiders and it put a gloss on this kind of reactionary threat based ideology but you know in a a good interviewing fashion as soon as they started to talk about this they would get a little bit off their cue card and then it would start to come out, right, what what exactly is it that they're afraid of elites? Because of, well, elites aren't like them. These cultural outsiders don't share their work ethic or their vision of America. So in, in terms of why they opposed the Republican Party initially, why they started priming Republican candidates, it very much came from this place of, well, those are establishment elite insiders. They aren't like us. And I think as it's evolved, it's given way to what was maybe underneath it all along, which was this ideology that put avoiding this threat above other elements of conservatism.
0: Bloom sees the Dixiecrats as a useful historical president, placing both in the category of party within a party, a faction with broad goals.
2: We do see a couple historical instances of, the, of this. The Dixiecrats are one of my favorites because they just so clearly followed this pathway. They were part of the Democratic coalition. They didn't just want a particular person elected, and they didn't just want to change what it meant to be a uh, liberal per se. They literally wanted to change the course of the Democratic Party to focus on an entirely different set of ideological concerns.
0: But the Tea Party succeeded by sidelining the concerns of other factions, rather than by taking opposite positions.
2: The way I'm conceiving it is not that any group within the Republican Party, any member of their coalition has to care about one and only one dimension of their ideology, but that it's a priority structure. So it should make sense that we see the Tea Party, especially the activists who were really tied to that name, taxed enough already, emphasizing economic issues. But what's significant is that they don't just emphasize the economic issues that their movement was purportedly all about. They also find time to bring in issues on immigration, law and order, making America great again. If you you look at the terms they're actually using to describe these issues, you get a gloss on immigration that's a little bit different than what you might have seen before.
0: And Gervais agrees that the current administration shows the Tea Party became fully institutionalized rather than died.
2: It's more
1: institutionalized than even it was in the past, right? Even as things like the Tea Party Caucus have faded, even though we don't hear members identifying as Tea Parties anymore, right? We'd say that the Freedom Caucus uh, continuing to be a factor, an important factor in in the House, right, is evidence of of the Tea Party still being a, a major player. And now we see the Tea Party at least in the House, even grow, right, from outside the legislative branch to the executive as well, right? There's a number of Tea Party veterans of the House who are not, who have served or are currently serving in the Trump administration. Mike Pence, the current vice president of the United States, was a founding member of the Tea Party caucus. So in some ways, the Tea Party caucus probably, you know, we'd argue is at the pinnacle of its power, or the Tea Party in the House is at the pinnacle. It's expanded now from the legislative branch to the executive branch as well.
0: Gervais says the left is unlikely to match the Tea Party, as its leaders tend to police uncivil behavior.
1: So it seems to be more generally a willingness among Democrats to try to regulate their own not to say that Democrats and liberals are, aren't uncivil right they are but there seems to be you know democratic or, or liberals and democratic elites uh, tend to be more willing to admonish and scold members for taking for, for doing the, those sort of things and being uncivil and I think some of it has to do with the fact that again you know the Democratic Party it's it's got programmatic goals and wants to see policies pass and in some ways incivility is, is bad for a Or at least that's an argument we make. It's bad for deal-making. And so this really doesn't advance the Democratic cause.
0: And Bloom says the left has not organized the same way or nearly as effectively in practical politics.
2: As soon as Alessandra Ocasio-Cortez wins, right, everybody starts writing about the Tea Party on the left. And, And to me, the question is, what is the Tea Party if it is on the left, right? Like what is this actual phenomenon that we're observing? And the problem so far with the idea of the Tea Party on the left or the Democratic Socialists being that is that it is a very personalistic Uh, movement right now. So it's had a couple of magnetic individuals, uh, Bernie, Alessandra, um, a few other high profile cases, but it doesn't have what the Tea Party had, which was this factional structure that actually kind of ran parallel to, mirrored, was within, however you want to put it, the structure of their party and what would need to happen for the Democratic Socialists to be as effective is that Tea Partiers were very, very good at working the party system. A lot of them had been members of the Republican Party more generally for a long time. They were used to going to meetings, to canvassing, to working through low-profile local offices all the way up to gaming convention systems so that they could get a better arrangement for themselves. So by the time you see David Bratt beating Eric Cantor, which is a similar kind of high-profile episode, you already had an apparatus that was so strong that without any kind of fundraising or elite support, the seven Tea Party groups in Virginia 7th, had organized this massive get-out-the-vote effort for David Bratt.
0: Gervais sees a lesson for traditional party leaders in the Tea Party. You can provoke the base's primal concerns, but it may come back to bite you
1: leaders like McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, John Boehner, Paul Ryan, and even Eric Cantor. And we see them early on sort of embracing the Tea Party, uh, trying to utilize it. And the moral of the story is, one day you are the insurgency, and the next day you are a target of these, right? Because each of these individuals, to an extent, has, has been uh, stymied by, by the Tea Party or elements of the Tea Party in Congress.
0: There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available biweekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Rachel Bloom and Brian Gervais for joining me. Join us next time to find out how inequality and social sorting drive polarization.